Well, good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you'd get your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah the 26th chapter is where we're going to begin this evening. going to read one verse there in just a moment that will help to uh, be the launching pad for everything that we want to talk about from the Word of God this evening. Isaiah chapter 26, lots of Bible this evening. And so uh, help yourself and help me as well by looking along in the Scriptures in Isaiah 26 to start with. It's great to see everybody this evening, and it is great to have this second opportunity to worship together on the first day of the week. I trust that you've had a a good and pleasant afternoon, and I know that many are uh, eager to get home this evening and to watch a football game that I think is probably going to start happening uh, in the middle of the lesson this evening, but I'm glad that you've prioritized uh, the more important things, the spiritual things, the things that are the matters of the soul and being together with your brothers and sisters to glorify God and to study from His Word. In fact, let's just get right to it. Let's be looking in the Word in Isaiah. Isaiah, the 26th chapter. I'm reading here in verse number 3. In Isaiah 26 and in verse 3, there the prophet of the Lord says this, Isaiah 26 and in verse 3, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. As you walk down the street, a car passes by with its windows rolled down and the stereo is pumping, boom, thump, a boom, thump, a boom. While you hear all of that noise going on, suddenly a siren starts to wail in the distance and whizzes by. Overhead, a jet rumbles as it flies over your head. And in the middle of all that, your phone begins to chirp and tweet and chime and all the noises that it makes. There's a cacophony of noises that are always going on in our world. But of course, it's not just that external noise that gets your attention. Inside, your stomach churns and your mind buzzes with endless thoughts of what if this and what about that? As it seems as if our heart is nervous and restless with the cares of the crazy world in which we live. In particular, in the last 10, 11 months or so, in the age of COVID, There is much that causes us to remain unsettled and unnerved about and there certainly is plenty of noise to keep us in a state of tension and distress. But then we open up our Bibles and we read Isaiah 26 in verse 3. And suddenly what we find in that verse is exactly what our hearts are yearning for in this chaotic world. Peace. Peace. In fact, not just any kind of peace, but perfect peace. This evening I'm asking, do you have that? Have you found and secured that perfect peace? And bare minimum, if you haven't found that and obtained it, are you looking for it? Are you seeking after it and pursuing it? I must confess to you this evening that Isaiah 26 and what it is offering is very appealing to me. And I am very interested to know more about it. My world is busy. And unfortunately, my spirit is busy too. And with all of the loud and stressful things that are going on politically and economically and culturally... I don't know about you, but I could sure use an extra helping of peace in my life. And actually, I kind of think that maybe you could too. And so this evening, what I'd like to do for just a few minutes is I'd like to help just put our foot on that path. I want to talk for just a few moments about what the Bible says about peace, about where it comes from, about what it is, and most importantly of all, how to get more of it. 
And I want to start all of that just by noticing what the Bible does say about peace. Isaiah 26 verse 3 is not the final word. Now we certainly this evening cannot read everything. This is not going to be a comprehensive study of everything that the Bible has to say about peace. There are literally hundreds of references to peace in Scripture. But what we want to notice this evening is how peace is rooted in the Lord. And more specifically, how peace is something that is consistently connected to Jesus. That's what the Scripture shows us. How peace is just intrinsically woven into the fabric of the person of Jesus. And that's where I want to focus our attention this evening. All throughout the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, there seems to be a direct correlation between Jesus and peace. Like, for example, since we're here in Isaiah, look in Isaiah 9. In Isaiah the ninth chapter, in this wonderful prophecy concerning the Messiah, the prophet says this in verse 6. In Isaiah chapter 9 and in verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is foretold to be the Prince of Peace. What a marvelous title that He is privileged to wear. But you need to know that's not just a title. It is a very fitting description of the work that Jesus came to do. In Isaiah the 53rd chapter now, In Isaiah chapter 53, this is the famous servant song that describes in very graphic detail the suffering of the Messiah. We are told in verse 5, in Isaiah 53 and in verse 5, that of the Messiah, Isaiah 53 and verse 5, that He would be wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. Jesus is suffering as the Lamb being brought to the slaughter, as as violent and as horrific those images are in our mind. God actually says that it would be the very instrument by which peace would be brought into the world to those who would accept Him. In fact, when we come to the New Testament, we find that at the very announcement of Jesus' birth, there was accompanied with it a declaration of peace. Look in Luke chapter 2 now. In Luke chapter 2, do you remember what the angelic chorus was singing at the birth of Jesus? In Luke chapter 2, look in verse 14. In Luke 2 and in verse 14, they were saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. Of course, all throughout Jesus' life in ministry, He was a, a harbinger for peace. He taught about peace and probably nowhere more famous than in the Gospel of John. Look in John the 14th chapter. In John chapter 14, at a time when Jesus' disciples were very distressed. They were the very opposite of feeling peace. They were concerned about probably not just themselves, but more importantly, they were concerned about Jesus and what was going to happen to Him and what would be taking place in the not-too-distant future. Jesus gives them these promises. In John chapter 14, I'm reading here in verse 27. In John 14 and in verse 27, Jesus said to them, John 14, 27, He said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. 
Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In fact, we can add to that what he says in that same setting, on that same evening. Jesus again promises peace to them in chapter 16. In chapter 16 of John, drop down to verse 33. John 16 verse 33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. You know, maybe some of the very best teaching about the linkage between Jesus... And this concept of peace actually happens in the later epistles of the New Testament. Like for example, in Romans chapter 5, would you look in Romans the 5th chapter? In Romans 5, Paul really helps to just spell out this peace that Jesus brings. What's its, what's its primary function? What is it going to do? In Romans 5, I'm looking here in verse 1. In Romans 5 and verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That passage, in a very simple way, helps us to understand that Jesus' primary mission in coming to this earth was to help bring to an end the, the friction, the war, the hostility that existed between man and God. And that, of course, was caused by sin. Sin is the great separator between man and God. Jesus came to rectify all of that. He came to reconcile us back to God, to be that bridge back to God, to be our peace. In fact, peace is one of the defining characteristics of the kingdom that Jesus would establish. If you're still there in Romans, look in chapter 14. In Romans the 14th chapter, notice what Paul says about the kingdom. There's lots that can be said about the Lord's kingdom. But look at this in Romans 14, I'm in verse 17. Romans 14, 17, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Part of the essence of the kingdom is peace. And that, of course, means that the citizens in Christ's kingdom, the subjects in Christ's kingdom, they too are to be characterized by peace. I'm looking for Galatians, the fifth chapter now. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul is outlining for us the fruit of the Spirit. And I want you to notice what an important component in that fruit is, is peace. In, excuse me, in Galatians 5, this is verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love. Oh man, we, I mean, you got to have love. Can't be a Christian if you don't have love. But look what else you got to have. Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who are in Christ should be cultivating this crucial quality in their lives. This is one of the things that makes us distinct and different and separate from the rest of this world. Our world doesn't have peace. You probably encounter people every single day who have no measure of peace in their life. And it's because they don't have Jesus Christ. But this, this says that we are to be the people who are demonstrating and we have that peace, we have it in spades. In fact, maybe one of the most amazing things that Jesus does is how He makes peace between between people. I'm looking for Ephesians now in Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians, the second chapter, we've already noticed how Jesus brings peace between God and man. But Jesus also brings peace between man and man. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, this is verse 14, as he talks here, Paul's describing here about the, the conflict that existed for such a long time between Jews and Gentiles. He says in Ephesians 2 verse 14 that He Himself is our peace, that's Jesus, who has made us both one and He has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making Peace. You know, Jesus in many ways, he is the, He's the glue that bonds all of us together. We all are so different. We all come from so many different backgrounds and, and, and all kinds of upbringings and so forth. But it is Jesus that makes it possible for us to be one and to have peace with one another. One final verse in this connection. It's in Colossians 3. In Colossians 3, listen to what Paul says in verse 15. In Colossians 3 and in verse 15, Paul says there, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. One translation actually renders that verse, Let the peace of Christ control you. You know, here we are living in this just upside down, chaotic kind of world. There's all this noise happening around us. There's storms of every kind all around us all the time. How do we respond to that? How do we deal with that? How do we react to that? Well, Paul says the peace of Christ needs to be the decider. It is the peace of Christ that is the umpire in our lives. That's what sways and controls our thoughts and our actions in the midst of all of the storms. Now, that, of course, is, that is just the tip of the iceberg. There are dozens upon dozens of passages in the New Testament that demonstrate how peace is intricately tied to the person of Jesus. And maybe what we need to just notice from all of that is we just kind of compiled all of those passages and all of those ideas is that if you don't have Jesus, then you're not going to have peace. That's the takeaway from all of those passages. You know, you can try to get peace in all kinds of ways. You can go sit on the top of a mountain, cross-legged, fingers out doing this stuff, whatever that is, and chanting and humming to yourself. You can do all that new agey kind of stuff to try and find peace in this world. But I'm saying to you this evening, the Bible is saying this evening, that you will never have true peace separate and apart from Jesus Christ. You just can't. You just won't. In fact, maybe right here is a good place for us to just kind of just jump off and just define what it is that we're talking about, what the Bible's talking about when it talks about peace. I think that there is an aspect of peace that is probably very obvious to us, but there's another aspect of peace that maybe is not as obvious to us. The definition of peace that maybe is most obvious to us is that peace is... Nah, I didn't mean to give all that away all at once. Focus on the first part there. Peace is the opposite of war. If I would just go around the room and ask everybody, what is peace? That probably would be the first, the first thing that we would say. It's the opposite of war. It's the absence of enmity and hostility. We saw that earlier when we read Romans chapter 5, verse 1, didn't we? How Jesus came to make peace between us and God. Before, sin created hostility. There was friction. There was war there. But Jesus comes, and when Jesus is brought into that equation, He brings peace. In Ephesians 2, we notice that as well. Jesus brings peace between Jews and Gentiles and people of all kinds of different backgrounds. All the conflict, all the turmoil that once existed, it is removed by Jesus. And so now there can be harmony, and there can be amity, and there can be agreement. 
And certainly as we think about that first definition of peace, our world could use a big hefty dose of that, couldn't it? All the fighting and division that exists, and certainly in the world at large, but we think especially about in our country right now. Man, we would just love so much if that could be replaced with this kind of tranquility and peace. But you need to know that that is not the only thing that the Bible is going for when it talks about peace. The Hebrew term that we maybe are somewhat familiar with for peace is the word shalom. And it carries with it this second layer of what peace is, and that is this idea of wholeness, completeness. In fact, the passage that we started with in Isaiah 26 and verse 3, perfect peace... The idea there of perfect really is the idea of whole and complete. And what that means is is it means to have everything that is necessary for a happy and satisfying life. It has to do with a person's well-being. I can actually show you that. Would you look in Acts the 15th chapter? In Acts chapter 15, this is in the fallout of the Jerusalem conference. And we're told that there were some disciples who were chosen and selected to go and send and deliver some words of encouragement to to the Gentile churches that were round about. And when those brethren had came and they delivered that information and got done uh, with the task, we're told in Acts 15, I'm looking in verse 33, in Acts 15 and in verse 33, that after they had spent some time, those brothers were then sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. They were sent off in peace. Peace in this passage doesn't really mean and doesn't really fit with that first definition, does it? They sent them off without any hostility. That doesn't really work here because there wasn't any hostility to begin with. Peace here means that they were sent off with everything that they needed for their well-being. They were sent off in goodwill and with prosperity. And I'm saying to you this evening that that is something that Jesus is offering with His peace. Yes, He does bring an end to the enmity that exists between man and God. But even more than that, Jesus gives us all that we need for satisfaction and for happiness and contentment in this life. Having the peace of Christ means that life is good that all is well, my relationships are well, I am well, things are right, certainly between me and God, but things are right in an even broader sense. In fact, I I really hesitated this evening to even use the word serenity for fear that it would conjure up those images of the monk sitting on top of the mountain cross-legged and doing the chanting stuff. But I actually am going to use the word serenity this evening. Because I came to realize that that Greek word for peace that we see in the Bible, actually it's the word that's used right there in Acts 15.33, that it is the word erene, which is where we get our English word serene, serenity. And so I will say that peace is a serenity of heart. It is that calmness of spirit that recognizes that even when everything around us is so tumultuous and it is so storm-laden, I'm okay. I'm all right. Things are well with me. Now maybe the big question for us as we think about all of that is, well, how do we get some of that? Or how do we get more of that? You know, I am a Christian, so that's the first important step. I'm in Christ. I have Jesus. 
But I certainly could use more peace in my life, particularly in the chaos of the world in which we live today. That is something that I know I need to develop more into my character. So where do we look? Where can we go to grow peace in our lives? Well, it seems to me that what we want to do is we just want to turn our attention right back to Jesus. Think about it. Has there ever been anybody who had more going on around him, more chaos going on in their world than Jesus Christ? Authorities were chasing him all over the tarnation. Apostles were needing to be trained, needing to be taught, and oftentimes they seemed dull and hard of hearing. Crowds were pressing upon Him and making demands of Him. So many things were going on in Jesus' life and in Jesus' world. And yet, Jesus always, or maybe I should say He almost always, presented a calm and collected and centered exterior who knew that everything was all right and that exterior that flowed from an interior that was at peace It was very well put together. If I were to ask you to just draw a picture of the most peaceful person you could ever imagine and think of, you'd draw a picture of Jesus, wouldn't you? Whatever you think Jesus looks like. Jesus always seemed to have that that I've got it together demeanor. Even when the apostles and people around him were freaking out, oh, the ship is sinking, we're all going to die. Where's Jesus? He's calm. He is at peace. And maybe that is the reason that Jesus was able to say, My peace I give unto you. Which says to me that what we need to do is we need to try to mirror in our lives the things that gave Jesus the peace that we so greatly desire. Now I should be very clear before we even say anything else. Jesus Jesus didn't need peace for the exact same reasons that you and I need peace. Jesus, for example, did not need to be reconciled to God because of sin. Jesus didn't sin. There was no problems with Jesus and God's relationship. Jesus was never at enmity with the Father. But at the end of the day, He still is our example of peace. And He is the example that we want to be imitating. And so very briefly tonight for these last couple of minutes, let me share with you just three things that Jesus' life shows and demonstrates for us about obtaining more peace. And that just needs to begin very simply... Ah, I gave away all three again. You, you can't even see those bottom two. Just use your imagination. We're looking at the first one there. Obedience. That has to begin with obedience to God. Look with me in John the 15th chapter. In John chapter 15, you note takers, don't you be writing down point two and point three just yet. In John the 15th chapter, this is right in between those passages uh, that we read earlier from John 14 and John 16 where Jesus was promising peace to His disciples. Notice what He says in the middle of all that. In John 15, I'm reading here in verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. In fact, just bump back up a few verses. Look at the end of chapter 14. In chapter 14 and in verse 31, Jesus says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Now, now that's what Jesus did. Jesus obeyed the Father. He kept the Father's commandments. 
But sometimes I'm afraid how that verse seems to maybe translate in our own lives is, well, I love the Father and I sometimes kind of sort of do what He commands. You know, I, I just now said that and threw that out into the, into the open air and we all probably winced a little bit, maybe because, maybe because that's more true than we would care to admit. We sometimes are very selective in our obedience to God. In fact, other times we are we're making all kinds of excuses for why we didn't do the things that God wanted us to do. In fact, there are even occasions, I hope they are not many, but there are occasions where sometimes we're just out and out rebellious. We know this is what God said to do, and we're not doing it. And in fact, we're just willing to deal with the consequences of it. We're going to do what we want. Is it any wonder then, and you, wherever you may fall on the spectrum there of disobedience, really doesn't matter, is it any wonder... When peace is missing from our lives, when we are not doing the things that the Father wants us to do, how can we ever be at peace with God or even anybody else when we are rebelling against His commands that are for our good? Whenever there are pockets of resistance in our lives, then that means that there's always going to be at least some measure of tension and unrest between us and the Lord. I think, for example, about... In the Middle East, I think about in a country like Iraq. You know, that country, it's taken 20, 30 years, but that country has largely been subdued after all these years of American occupation over there. But can I ask you, would you say that Iraq is at peace today? Absolutely not. And why? Because there are still those pockets of resistance, pockets of guerrilla warfare going on there, and as a result, there is no true peace. And in much the same way, I'm saying to you this evening that when I have some of those pockets of guerrilla warfare going on in my life, there's these places in my life where I am refusing to surrender fully unto God. Maybe there are some sinful habits that I just, I, I just am, I'm just not doing the work to get shook of those things. Or there's areas of my life where I'm just, I'm just unwilling to completely turn over to God and to His will. As long as those things remain, then I will not have peace. Now that's certainly not to suggest this evening that, that you have to live perfectly in order to have peace. If that were so, then peace would, it would elude all of us, wouldn't it? But what I am saying this evening, is that willful rebellion against God's law where we know we're not doing what He said, that ends up putting us back at war with the Lord. And as a result, it'll never bring peace to our souls. I need to get serious about obedience if I want to have peace. I need to do that because, well, because Jesus did that. Which will lead me to this second great thing that we can learn from Jesus about having peace. And that is the principle of, can you guess it? It's the principle of rest. Look with me in Mark the 6th chapter, please. In Mark chapter 6, this is the kind of just little verse that we might be inclined to just kind of, we'd read and we just kind of would breeze right by because, well, we're looking for those, those meaty teachings of Jesus, but I think we do a disservice when we just run by these important examples that the Lord is setting for us. In Mark chapter 6, this is verse 31. In Mark 6 and verse 31, Jesus said to the apostles, He said, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. You know, biblically, actually even scientifically, I think, there is a connection between the body and the mind 
And certainly in the Bible there's a connection between the body and the mind and the spirit. And rest is what links all of that together. In fact, that principle of rest was first established all the way back in creation. And furthermore, it was codified in the old law, the law of Moses, when the Lord established the Sabbath day. You know, somehow what we've decided today is we've decided that, well, well, that's the Old Testament. You know, God resting on the seventh day. I mean, okay, that's in the book of Genesis. Or all that stuff about resting on the Sabbath day and stopping from work and doing all the things that you were supposed to be involved in on the Sabbath day, focusing on God and that sort of... Again, that's an Old Testament law. And since we're not under the old law, and that is true, we're not under the old law, then well, all of that stuff about rest, it just really isn't applicable to us today. That's just not true. That is not true. Because one of the reasons I believe oftentimes that we are lacking peace is because we are just so exhausted, we are so stressed out, we are so worn down. We are just doing and doing and doing. We are doing too much. And it seems as if we never sufficiently stop to rest our physical bodies. What happens to us then is really the very opposite of that shalom thing that we talked about earlier. The idea of life being good. Because instead we are fatigued and we are tired. We don't have the energy to do anything. We go to bed too late and we get up too early. And in between those two things, we shove as much stuff as we possibly can, as much entertainment, as much activity, as much things as we can cram into a 24-hour period and we're trying to do too much. But then Jesus comes along. And Jesus says, come away, child. Come away to a desolate place and rest a while. Okay, that that sounds pretty good. But I'm going to say to you tonight that unless we are willing to actually do the work to make that happen, unless we are willing to trim our schedules a bit, unless we are willing to say no to some of those invitations and some of those activities that we have the opportunity to do, unless we are willing from time to time to just stop everything and take a nap, then we're never going to allow the body and the mind and the spirit to be able to align, to have the quietness and the solitude that it needs to have peace. And I do realize, I always, I always feel like I'm you know, really taking a shot in the dark when I get up and I preach about rest. Because we get squirmy when we talk about rest. The idea of turning things down and just taking time for myself and resting my body. But you know what? You read through the Gospels. Jesus never was embarrassed or shy to take time for rest. He never apologized about that. Jesus was regularly telling folks, No, I'm not doing that. Jesus regularly, like in Mark 6, He's walking away from the crowds, stepping away from all of them, because I need some time, my disciples need some time to rest their bodies. Rest is not a sign of being weak. It's not a sign of somehow being spiritually inferior, and it is not something that we need to apologize for. The Lord made our bodies, and He knows what they're capable of, and He knows what they're not capable of. And He knows that the body and the mind needs rest so that the soul can have peace. And if Jesus rested, then you and I need to find time for rest as well. Finally then, if we're going to have peace, look with me in Luke the 22nd chapter. In Luke chapter 22, I said a moment ago that Jesus almost always 
seem to have that calm, cool, collected exterior. Focus on the word almost. Let me show you the one time where it seems as if Jesus maybe didn't have it all together. In Luke chapter 22, we read there, this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Luke 22, this is verse 41. Jesus withdrew from them about a stone's throw away, and He knelt down and He prayed, saying, Father, if You are willing, remove this cup from Me. Nevertheless, not My will but Yours be done. And there appeared to Him an angel from heaven, strengthening Him. And being in an agony, He prayed more earnestly, and His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. I don't know about you, but that just... That doesn't seem like calm, cool, and collected to me, does it? I want you to think about this, though. On the cross, a little while later, Jesus is calm, cool, and collected. At Calvary, in fact, even in some of the scourging and the other things that happened leading up to Calvary, Jesus didn't seem to be rattled by any of those things. Even the great physical torture that He would have to endure didn't seem to shake Him. But this, this here in Luke 22... This is Jesus shaken. This is Jesus in great agony. This is the one place in all the Bible that I can tell where Jesus doesn't seem to really be at peace as He is contemplating the thought of bearing the sins of the whole world. He is about to become a sin offering. And His peace with the Father as a result, it's about to be disrupted temporarily. But it's about to be disrupted. And that's not to suggest that Jesus Himself is sinning or that even by bearing the sins of the world that that made Him a sinner. But it is the fact that He is about to die for the sins of others. What's Jesus' response to that? How does Jesus address that disquietedness in His soul? Jesus' response is to pray to the Father. In fact, isn't it true? that after this time in Gethsemane in prayer, that Jesus does have it all together once again. Judas and the band come, and they're there, and they're there to cause all kinds of chaos, and Jesus is as calm as a cucumber. He's not running away from them. He walks up and says, Here I am. It was a time of prayer. It was prayer that Jesus needed to prepare for this tremendously difficult task of the cross. And maybe what I'm just most impressed with in all of this is that in prayer, Jesus is able to find the peace that He needs. And Jesus was able to find that because He had absolute trust in His Father. He had absolute confidence that when He approached the throne of God, God was going to hear and God was going to answer. And I wonder sometimes if maybe much of the distress that exists in our lives is due to a lack of prayer. And maybe that lack of prayer is due to a lack of faith and a lack of trust and confidence in our Heavenly Father. A failure to trust Him enough to go before His throne and not just offer one of those stuffed, cliched prayers, but to actually bear our hearts, spill what we are feeling and what we are thinking, and do that with full assurance and confidence that He is going to hear and that He is going to respond. Can you grab Philippians chapter 4? In Philippians chapter 4, you probably had to know this passage was going to be brought to the table eventually. I would not be able to preach this sermon without pulling it in. In Philippians the 4th chapter, I'm reading in verse 6. 
In Philippians 4 and in verse 6, I've heard so many Christians say during the last year that passages like this have been such a help to them. And it's been kind of what's helped them to kind of stay level-headed and centered in the midst of all this COVID chaos. In Philippians 4 and in verse 6, Paul says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And notice what happens, verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, that's a stunning passage. Because here is this amazing gift. This peace that is it's beyond our understanding. It is available to us not by us having to take some kind of extraordinary measure. It's not available to us through some kind of miraculous means. It doesn't take an act of Congress in order to obtain this. It is by prayer and supplication that we have access to the very same peace that Jesus had. And if you and I, if we are ever going to have peace in this world, then what Jesus says and what Jesus shows us is that prayer is going to need to be a big part of that equation. You know, there is much in our world that is noisy. And in all honesty, I, I just really don't expect that noise and that chaos to subside anytime soon. In fact, it may get louder and it may get worser. And I know worser is not a word, but I'm making it a word. It may get worser as time goes on. But part of the good news of the gospel is, is that we can have peace amidst all of that when we are in Christ. And furthermore, when we do these simple kinds of things, this is certainly not an exhaustive list this evening. It's not the kind of thing this evening where you're going to go home and like, all right, number one, number two, number three, boom, I've got perfect peace. No. But this puts our foot on the path. It helps us to pursue that perfect peace so that in the end, we'll be able to be the recipients of what 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 16 describes. In 2 Thessalonians 3 and in verse 16, where Paul, as he concludes the letter to the Thessalonians, he says, Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace at all times in every situation. The Lord be with you all. I want that to be said of me. I want it to be said that the Lord of peace, He is with me, and He is granting me the peace that I need in any and every situation. I believe when we look to Jesus, and maybe that is the unifying theme between the sermon this morning and the sermon this evening, when we look to Jesus, we find everything that we need in order to have peace in this world. Now, if you're not a Christian this evening... I will just reiterate what I said a little bit earlier. And that is, if you do not know the Lord, and by know, I mean you are in relationship with Him. I don't mean you just know the facts about the Lord. I mean you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. He knows you, and you know Him in that way. And you're living for Him, and you are part of Him, and He is part of you. If you don't have that, you're not going to have peace. Try as you may, do whatever, take all kinds of self-help courses and read self-help books and do all kinds of stuff that the world has to offer, but you will never have true peace. But in Christ Jesus, we have a peace that the world will never understand. 
We have a peace that comes from heaven above. And this evening, if you are not a child of God, you have the opportunity to gain access to the blessing of peace and everything else that comes in Jesus Christ. If you would present and announce your faith in Jesus as the Son of God, that's called confession. Turn away from sin, that's called repentance, and then be baptized in water. Then tonight, you can leave this place knowing that you are in a right relationship with the Lord. The hostility, the war that was existing between you and God, that's done away with now. Because through Jesus Christ, I am now, I am now in the family of God. Can we help you tonight to take those steps? If you are a Christian, but it may just be brother or sister that your life is not at peace, it may be that that's because of sin. And if that is the case, then this evening we're encouraging you to pray to God. And if we can help you in that prayer and encourage you, we're ready to do that. It may just be, though, that you, you don't have peace and it's just because of circumstances that are beyond your control, things that are going on in this world or in your life personally, it may just be overwhelming. And maybe what you need tonight is you just need the prayers and encouragement of your brethren. We can do that as well. Whatever your need may be, we want to have peace. And in Jesus we can. And let's come and get some of that peace. Let's do something about that right now while we stand and while we sing.